I want to say welcome to Journey Church, especially if you're a guest, maybe with us for the first time. We're delighted and thrilled to be worshiping God with you today. We hope today is real significant and meaningful, not just in like a surface way, but in like a deep spiritual sense that today is very meaningful and impacting to you. That's why we do this, that we would have an encounter with God that would actually be life-changing. That's why we're here. And I want to start today on this question, and it's the question we're going to be spending the next 30 days asking ourselves as a church around this place, and it's this. If you knew that you only had one month to live, if you knew you only had one month to live, how would you live differently than you are right now? Think about that. If you knew you only had one month to live, how would you live differently than you are right now? It's a real thought-provoking question, isn't it? We typically try to avoid asking and then even answering such poignant and even dramatic questions. It's kind of a dramatic question, right? We say, I'm pretty sure that I've got longer than a month to live. We like take our pulse and go, I'm pretty sure I've got longer than a month to live. And that's an attempt to try to reassure ourselves, isn't it, that we do have longer than a month to live. And then we quickly return our attention to the humdrum of busy 21st century life in the United States. But the truth is this, our time on earth is absolutely limited. There's no squirming our way out of that reality. No matter if you're rich or poor, young or old, how successful you've been, where you live, the great equalizer in this life is our mortality. Every single second that passes is a second of your life that you can't get back, that you can't redo, that you can't put back in the bottle. Even as you sit in this room today, moments pass by that can never be regained. Our days as human beings, they're numbered. And every one that passes by is gone, forever gone. And some people, they hear stuff like that and they think like, whoa, that is such a bummer. Some people even call it maybe a double-barreled bummer, right? But to call it a bummer, to call that truth a bummer is like missing the point. See, it's only when we choose to see and treat the time that we have on this planet as limited and as a precious commodity, it's then and it's only then that we can be freed up to live the life that God intends us to live and has intended us to live from the very beginning of time. Truth is this. For most of us, if we knew we just had one month to live, one calendar page left to our life, that we would live differently than we are right now, wouldn't we? There would be a certain authenticity to our lives. There would be a certain deliberateness about how we spend the precious moments allotted to us by God. I'm convinced that if we knew we had just one month to live, and this is what we're going to focus our time together on today, that we'd spend those 30 days living as passionately as we possibly could, wouldn't we? You can turn in your journal that you were given when you came in to page two and three. There's some sermon notes page, pages there for you to take notes on if you'd like. I'm going to ask you to bring this with you every weekend. You're not going to get a new one. They told me to tell you that back there at the door. You have to bring your own every week. If you forget, mm, you know. I'll talk to you a little more about the rest of that later. But if we knew we just had one month to live... I'm convinced that we would live them more passionately. We would live our days more passionately than we are right now. What's passion anyway? What's passion? Well, it's fervor, isn't it? Passion is enthusiasm. Passion is zeal for life. 
zeal for what matters most in life. But as you survey our societal landscape these days, we see so few people walking around planet Earth who are living life with any fervor, with any enthusiasm, or with any zeal for that matter. Soren Kierkegaard, you probably have heard of him before. He was a philosopher who was a man way, way ahead of his time. He wrote over a hundred years ago these words, this age will die, he said, not from sin, but from a lack of passion. And he's right. Everywhere you turn, you see the truth of Kierkegaard's cogent analysis. Our society, see, is marked by a certain deadness, aren't we? Just think with me about how many marriages in our country end every single year. They're in the millions, a number in the millions. And they don't all end for the reasons that we think that they end for or imagine that they end for. Affairs and adultery, it's not even, they're not even close to the number one cause for the millions of marriages that end every year in the United States, even though lots of people do have affairs. Most marriages, though, most marriages that end, they end simply because the relationship just flames out, right? They just die. But they die because the people in those marriages are in large numbers dead themselves. After a while, there just isn't any passion left. Most of the time, there's not even enough passion left in people to hate their partner, whether they've been faithful or unfaithful, because, see, hate takes emotion, and there's just not a lot of emotion left in people these days. You've heard it said, married people just one day they wake up and they just talk about how they just started to drift apart, right? Just drift apart. Talk about passionless, just drifting apart. That's what you do in an inner tube on the river. You drift apart, not in a marriage relationship. We just drifted apart. Our society is indeed marked by a certain deadness, isn't it? I have a friend who used to speak at high school assemblies. He used to love them, absolutely loved them, but not these days. The reason he stopped enjoying them, not that students misbehave, not that they show no respect. He'd take that, actually. He'd be happy to see that. It's that high school students in large numbers are living dead these days. My friend talks about in the old days of doing high school assemblies, he could always count on students acting out during those assemblies. He always expected very funny things to happen, paper airplanes to sail out of the balconies, smoke bombs to be lit up and tossed from one set of bleachers across the gymnasium to the other side. That was fun. That was life. But not anymore. Nowadays, he says, students just sit there dead, Blank looks on their faces, never giving away just exactly how they're feeling, probably because they're feeling so very little. Our society is marked by a certain deadness, see, but a passionless, death-like existence is absolutely no way for us to be living the one and only life that God himself has gifted to us. We get one shot at this life, and it's way too short to waste any time walking around dead-like. Lots of you, I'm sure, have been to a cemetery before. I'm sure you've looked at the headstones that dot the landscape of a cemetery. And when you've gone there and when you've looked, you very quickly notice that a person's entire life is reduced to two dates and a dash mark, right? Yeah, sure, some headstones, they've got a nice Bible verse maybe engraved or some saying engraved, some tidbit about the person's life 
But the crux of a person's life really all comes down to what transpired between those two dates. And it really, really all comes down to the dash mark, doesn't it? Because it's in the dash mark that questions like, what did that person live for? What did that person give their life to? What was that person passionate about? It's in the dash that questions like those are answered. Truth be told, you and I, we've got very little control over our lives. We never got to weigh in on where or when we were born, who our parents are. We certainly didn't get to weigh in on what we look like, right? Neither do we get to decide on what dates get etched into our gravestone. We have absolutely no idea when our time on this earth will be up. It might be 30 days from now. It might be 30 minutes from now. If it is, by the way, you're dying in church, just so you know. Wouldn't be all bad. It might be 30 years from now. God himself only knows. And while we don't have much control over much in our life, God does give us infinite control over how we use our dash, the dash that is our life. Every single one of us gets to appropriate that tiny dash of time between the start date and the end date of this earthly existence. How are you appropriating yours? How are you appropriating your dash mark? Are you living your dash passionately for what matters most in life? Or are you just spending precious time chasing things that in the end just don't really matter? Every once in a while, something happens that shakes and rattles people out of a passionless, death-like, mundane existence and thrusts them into the full-throttle, passion-filled life that God invites all of us to live every single day. And it was just such an occurrence that entirely changed the trajectory of the life of 19th century Russian novelist, a guy named Fyodor Dostoevsky. Fyodor, he had never been like an ordinary fella anyway, but it was this experience of this particular moment that gave him radical insight that was so much a part of the genius of the rest of his life. See, Dostoevsky was a young idealist. And he believed that political revolution was the essential route for the life that God had willed and intended and called him to. So he joined up with one of those militant socialist movements that seemed to be everywhere on the landscape in 19th century Russia. But his efforts to bring about the kingdom of God by overthrowing the czar came to naught. His mini-revolution quickly flamed out and died. Dostoevsky was imprisoned by the czar, and so he thought, sentenced to death, except he didn't die. Those who dared challenge the czar's totalitarian power, they were sometimes subjected to cruel psychological tricks designed to break their spirits. In Dostoevsky's case, they were blindfolded. They were put before a firing squad. The commands of ready, aim, fire were given. The sounds of shots rang out, but then nothing. The bullets, they were just blanks, see. The victims, they'd been forced to go through the agony of dying, but then there was not the release and the deliverance that death itself very often brings. That brutal process was designed to destroy the emotional life of the czar's victims. But in the case of Fyodor Dostoevsky, it ironically provided him with a whole new way of living life. 
facing death without dying gave him a new perception of reality, an ability to apprehend life with an appreciative passion. As the moment when she was sure would be his last approach, he found himself living life with a hitherto unknown heightened awareness about everything in his world. In the face of death, each event that remained in his existence, regardless of how apparently ordinary it was, took on a momentous importance. As he ate his last meal, for example, he passionately concentrated on the taste of every single bite, savoring each morsel. And remember, this is 19th century Russian prison food. Not so good, I'm sure. Difficult to savor. But he did because he believed that this would be the last food he would ever eat. As they marched Dostoevsky out into the courtyard where he was to be executed, he took in the sun and he breathed in the air with a passion-filled appreciation that he had never before known. And he did that because to the condemned Dostoevsky, every sensation was to be enjoyed with a heightened awareness. Each experience was processed with a passion-filled sensitivity. He studied the faces of each and every soldier who was charged with the grisly task of shooting him because these, so he thought, would be the very last faces he would ever see. Dostoevsky was living in the face of death, wasn't he? Later, he confessed to some close friends that he had lived more in what he had been convinced were the last moments of his life than he had ever lived in his decades before Each moment and each experience leading up to that mock execution had been seized by him with passion. He had tried to suck out of what remained of life all that it could possibly give. He had learned how, in the face of death, to live out the full and the passionate and the rich life that God has invited every single person on planet Earth to live. And that's why we're talking about this subject today. That's why we're spending the next 30 days talking about these matters because that's the goal in this life. It is indeed possible to live this one and only life free from the certain deadness that marks so many lives these days. When we're honest, when we give thought to it, most of us would have to admit that when we think about it, much of our lives has simply been the meaningless passage of time between all too few moments when we have really, truly been alive. Most people are born, and then some number of years later, they die without ever really having lived at all. We eat with no passion. We sleep with no passion. We work with no passion. We go to school with no passion. We even reproduce with no passion. We live all of life with no passion merely playing it safe, just tiptoeing through life with no aspiration whatsoever other than to arrive safely at death. What kind of life is that, I ask? I'm convinced that if we knew we had just one month to live, one calendar page left to our earthly existence, that we would indeed live differently than we are right now. But why wait until death is imminent to live this life to the fullness that God intends? Why would we wait I'm going to ask you to use that journal that you were given when you came in. 
And ask yourself that question every single day for the next 30 days and record your answer. Have an interaction with God every single day. If I knew that I just had one month to live, how would I live this life differently? Spend some time reflecting on that with God. I'm expecting transformational things across the life of our church because we're asking that question of God together. Write down your response. Think on it. Have conversation with your friends and spouse around it. Because I'm convinced that if we knew we had just one month to live, that we'd live our lives much more passionately than we are right now. That rather than just rushing through family meals, seeing them as just a task to be accomplished, that we would rather bask in those precious moments of lingering around the family dinner table. I'm convinced that if we knew we had just one month to live, that we would breathe deep the rich aroma of just a simple cup of coffee with your spouse as you watch the sunrise through the kitchen window. I'm convinced that if we knew we had just one month to live, that we would savor every moment of conversation with our kids, even those conversations when they're asking the same question like 3,000 times and we don't have any idea what the answer is that we would drink those moments in. I'm convinced that if we knew we had just one month to live, that we would passionately seize every opportunity God allows us to reflect and to reveal his life and his truth to whomever he puts in our path. But it's not easy to live a passion-filled life, is it? There are obstacles to living the passion-filled life that God intends for all of us to live. If there weren't, we'd all be doing it right now. We'd all be living full-throttle lives for God, wouldn't we? I want to talk about and show you some of those obstacles through the story of a guy from the Bible, a guy named Simon. You might know him a little better as Peter. But when we first pick up the story of Simon in the Bible, Jesus invites him and his brother Andrew to leave their, their fishermen Simon and his brother Andrew, they're just simple fishermen alongside the Sea of Galilee. And one day, here comes this man named Jesus Christ, and he taps him on the shoulder, and he says, guys, why don't you stop fishing for perch? I got bigger fish for you to catch. And they're like, oh, all right, I'm into catching big fish. We're going to go with you. And so they set their boat aside. They set their nets aside. They set everything about their life that they knew to that point. They set it aside, and they followed this man named Jesus Christ. It was radical. It was absolutely radical for them to do that. They did it. And then it wasn't too very much longer after Jesus invited Simon into his inner circle of friends that Jesus decided to change Simon's name, change his name to Peter, the more common name we know him by, because Peter means the rock, right? If you've got a Bible, you can turn to the book of Matthew chapter 16, or you can follow along on the side screens. Here's when Jesus made that name change with Peter. Here's what it says. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus said, Jesus said to Peter, look, you're going to anchor my team here on the planet. I'm going to build my whole team around you, Peter. You are the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation. I'm going to build my thing called the church. Nobody even knew what that was at that point. I'm going to build my thing called the church upon you. And Peter heard that and he's going, whoa, I'm kind of a big deal. I get to be the rock. And I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I think I'm kind of, it happens to us, right? We start like reading our own mail. We're like, oh, kind of a big deal. 
We start listening to the things that people say about us that are good. We're like, oh, I'm kind of a big deal. Peter, he did that very thing. Peter became a lot overconfident, just like we very often become a lot overconfident. One night, right before Jesus was arrested, Jesus himself, he tried to warn his closest friends about what was coming down the pike, what was about to unfold. And he's like, guys, look. This is gonna be the most difficult and brutal season of your whole lives. He was bracing them. This is gonna be like nothing that you've ever faced before in all of your days, Jesus said to his closest friends. Look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 33. On the way, you're wondering like, where are they on their way to? They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, right before Jesus was arrested, he went to this garden and he prays. He asked God to remove this cup of suffering from him. He says, God, if I don't have to die I'd rather not do I'd rather not that wasn't the case and remember Jesus disciples they kept falling asleep and Jesus kept going to them and then eventually he was arrested in that very garden that's where they're on the way to as the text says on their way to that garden Jesus told them tonight all of you will desert me kind of like a little pep talk right tonight all of you will desert me and look at what Peter does he doesn't just say he doesn't just observe Peter declared the text says, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. He's absolutely passion-filled, isn't he? Peter's going, Lord, I'm never going to desert you. Don't you remember? I'm the rock of this whole outfit. I'm the champion, Jesus. While everyone else is crashing and burning all over the place, I won't be. Jesus, you can count on me. I'll be with you all the way to the finish line and beyond. Jesus, I'm your wingman, and I won't leave you. Probably not the wingman thing. Peter might not have said that. Top Gun wasn't around yet. But that's not at all how it went, was it? Peter declared all this stuff, but then he didn't deliver on all that stuff. Lots of you know the story of Peter. It was just a few short hours later that Peter, who promised to never desert Jesus, well, he did. And it wasn't just that he was like an ordinary desertion, just like leaving him somewhere. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And you can't really blame him, can you? He got scared. He saw everything that was going down and he lost his nerve. And he told people on three different occasions, he told people, I don't even know who you're talking about. I don't even know that man, Jesus. And you want to know the very worst thing about the whole Peter denying Jesus gig is that Jesus actually saw it unfold. Jesus was watching. Look at Luke 22, verses 61 and 62. At that moment, at that moment, was it the moment, the third time that Peter denied Jesus? At that moment, Peter was hanging out in this courtyard around where Jesus was being kept, and he was hanging around these bonfires, and these people kept saying, aren't you with him? You kind of, I think I've seen you with him, and you're a Galilean, so you must have been with him. And at that moment, the third time, he said, no, I don't have any idea who you're talking about. The Lord turned, and he looked at Peter. And suddenly, in that moment, the text says, the Lord's word flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. And notice, Jesus didn't even speak a single word to Peter. He just looks at him. And with just that look, Peter recalled just a few hours prior, he was like bragging up his loyalty 
And Jesus looked right into Peter's heart and he saw the regret and he saw the pain and he saw the guilt. And you talk about a mess. Like what a mess. All appears lost, right? And maybe you're in the middle of a mess today. I don't know exactly what kind of mess. Maybe it's a mess with your marriage. Maybe you're in a mess with your kids. Maybe you're in a mess with your parents. Maybe you're in a mess with your business. Maybe it's your inner emotional world that is an absolute mess. But look at this. When Jesus looked on Peter's mess, he didn't even have to say a word. He just looked with incredible love straight into Peter's heart. And I want you to know that the truth is he's doing the exact same thing with you right here, right now, today. He sees your pain and he sees your regret He sees your guilt. He sees right through your mess, whatever it is. But Jesus is saying something to you today, and it's this. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you, Jesus says. And because of his incredible and undying, absolutely passionate love for you, your mess, no matter how big it is, is not the end, see. Jesus, he conquered death, he conquered hell, and he conquered the grave when he died on the cross and when he rose again. And if he can conquer death, hell, and the grave, he can certainly ensure that our failures are not the fatal blows that we often think and feel they're gonna be. Our God is the God of second chances, and he gives you the chance to begin all over again, see. But if you wanna be all about overcoming the deadness that's resident in so many lives. And if you want to be about living a life of passion and zeal and fervor and enthusiasm, you can't be about playing the blame game. You can't say that it's somebody else's deal, that your mess is somebody else's deal, that your mess is somebody else's problem, that your mess is somebody else's mistake. Because see, living the passionate life that God intends for us to live starts with us admitting and confessing our sin to God so that we can be forgiven. That's the first barrier to us living the passion-filled life that God intends for us to live. It's our inability to admit and confess our sin to God and seek his forgiveness. It keeps us from living the full-throttle life that God intends. It's only inside of the admission of our failures that we can actually learn from our mistakes. Look at Proverbs 28, 13. People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them. It isn't just about confessing. It's about turning and going the opposite direction. They will receive mercy, the Bible says. God so wants to give us another chance. It's just that he simply asks us to admit to him when we mess up. That's us taking personal responsibility for our mistakes, for our failures, for our screw-ups, refusing to play the blame game. God forgives us, and he starts us with a brand new clean slate every single time. And then, in order for us to be about living the passion-filled life that God intends for us to live, We got to be all about losing the guilt and the shame, our sin and our mistakes and our screw-ups and our failures leave behind in our life. We've got to be all about losing the guilt and the shame. 
That's the second barrier to us living the passion-filled life that God intends for us to live. It's our reluctance to lose the guilt and lose the shame about our sin and mistakes. Nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, will sap the passion that God desires to put inside of your life more than haunting guilt and shame. Guilt and shame renders us spiritually incapacitated every day of the week. And so many people walking around planet Earth these days are bound to a death-like existence because they're carrying guilt and they're carrying shame that they were never in a million years meant to carry. God did not design us to carry guilt nor to carry shame with us. You've all read Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, right? Way back in high school probably. You know the story, it's about a young Puritan pastor who becomes sexually involved with a woman from his congregation. He was way out of bounds. As the story unfolds, we find that this adulterous clergyman is able, for the most part, to keep what has happened a secret. But the guilt and the shame of what he's done diminishes greatly his ability to preach and to live life with passion. The fear of being publicly exposed makes him captive to mediocrity. The brilliance of his once very fiery messages all but withers up and dies. He loses his concentration. He finds that the tiredness that comes from lots and lots of sleepless nights renders him absolutely listless. But it's only after he admits his failures and releases his guilt and shame that God is able to restore his passion and his zeal for life that had been his previous hallmark. Now I know, I know that all of us, me included, get ourselves into spots where we feel like we're so far off God's track that there's absolutely no way back for us. Maybe you've screwed up really, really bad. Maybe you've been incredibly selfish. Maybe you've hurt so many people. Maybe you've made the hugest mistake you can ever imagine. But in the midst of the biggest screw-up you can possibly think of, God is saying, you are never too far away from my love. You are never too far away from my love. God is saying, I still have a plan for you. I still want to put my passion inside of you. Please, please do not just settle for a passionless, death-like existence because you think that's all you deserve because what you've done is so big and so bad. Please. Peter messed up so badly. He messed up so badly. He denied even knowing Christ. But I want to show you something from Mark chapter 16. Look at what the angel said after Jesus had been raised from the dead. The whole thing has gone down and the angel is announcing that Jesus is going out ahead of the disciples. And look at what the angel says. Now go and tell his disciples. And then look at the next two words. Including Peter. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter. The rest of the disciples, they're just lumped together, right? Go and tell the disciples, his disciples. Peter, he gets his own special mention, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. And see, as badly as Peter had messed up, the angel never excluded him from God's plan. He is still one of Jesus' closest friends, even though he had screwed up royally. Peter was a wreck after he had blown it so bad. He was such a wreck that he thought he had been disqualified permanently from God's race. 
But Jesus wanted Peter to know that he hadn't given up on him and that God's plan and God's passion was still wide open and available to him. It was God, see, after all, who gave Peter the power to start all over again, to become a great and even more passionate follower of his. And he is saying the exact same thing to you today. God has not forgotten you. God has not given up on you. He has a great and a passionate existence in store for you. You can begin right here and right now, as a matter of fact. It starts by admitting our sin. God's passion then continues to well up inside of you as you leave the guilt and you leave the shame about your sin way in the rearview mirror of your life. And then, in order to fully realize the passionate life that God has in store for us, we've got to completely surrender to God's strength. We've got to completely surrender to God's strength. The third barrier to us living the passion-filled life that God intends for us to live is our reluctance to surrender our lives to God's strength and God's plan and God's purpose. See, living life passionately requires that our lives are fueled by God's power, not our own ego. It starts by surrendering to God's power every single day. And surrendering means yielding doesn't it? And we don't like to yield very much, do we? Surrendering means giving ourselves fully to God's way rather than our own way. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 9. If any of you wants to be my follower, he says, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. The yielding is in the turning from your selfish ways, In order to live the passionate, full-throttle existence that God invites every single one of us to live every single day, we got to set our selfish ways aside. we got to give up entirely our broken ways of being fulfilled. we got to give ourselves fully to following God's plan and God's purpose for our lives. And I know that is the precise opposite of how the world says life is supposed to work. But Peter bears it out perfectly, doesn't he? When he denied Christ, life took an abysmal turn for the worst, didn't it? But as he learned to deny himself rather than satisfy himself, he was living smack dab in the crosshairs of the passionate life that God had planned for him from the beginning of time. If you knew you just had one month to live, Wouldn't you want to live it more passionately than you are right now? Wouldn't you want to live differently than you are right now? And I don't know about you, but if I knew that I just had one month to live, I'd be waking up every single day and I'd be saying, you know what? I want to be the best, most passionate husband I possibly can be. I want to be the best and most passionate father I can be. I want to be the best and most passionate son I can be. I want to be the best and most passionate brother I can be. I want to be the best and most passionate pastor and leader I can be. I want to be the best and most passionate friend I can be. I want to be the best and most passionate student I can be. But the truth is this. It's that I am utterly incapable, and so are you, of doing and being any of those things in my own strength, in my own power, see. 
We just don't have it in us to do any of that in our own power. The passionate life that God intends for us all to live can only be ours when we say, look, God, I can't do this. There is no way. I'm at the end of myself. I give up. I need you. And you know what? It's in that moment that God says, finally, right? Finally. That's just what I've been waiting for you to realize Because it's at that point when we're at the end of ourselves that we allow God the room to step into our lives and to impart his power and his strength for us to live a life of passion. This isn't just a pull yourself up by your bootstraps deal. It's about God's strength imparted to us every single moment of every single day. Set your things aside, if you would, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads And just speak to the Lord about what's on your heart and your mind. Just tell God what it is that you've been thinking about. You can do that now. ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed if you would please for the next few moments I want to talk to those of you who are sitting in this room today who would call yourself a Christ follower and I want to challenge you and I want to invite you to be all about living the next 30 days of your life with all the passion that God wants to give you to give yourselves fully to that to engage with that question Every single day. If I knew I only had one month to live, how would I be living differently than I am right now? But you know what? If you want to really live a life of passion as a Christ follower, you've got to be all about admitting and confessing your sin to God every single day, keeping short accounts with Him. If you're a Christ follower and you want to be all about living a life of passion that God intends for you to live, you've got to lose the guilt. You've got to lose the shame about your sin and your mistakes and your screw-ups and your failures. You've got to leave them in the rearview mirror. And if you're a Christ follower and you want to live a life of passion, you've got to surrender to God's strength. You've got to know you can't do it by yourself. And if you're a Christ follower sitting in this room today, I invite you to leverage these moments of stillness and quiet to do serious business with God around those things, to clean up your sin with God. Just deal with it. Just admit it. Just ask God's forgiveness for it. His mercy is there. And then tell God, I'm not going there again. I'm all done with that. And then leave the guilt and leave the shame behind about whatever that sin is. Just leave it. Drop all of it, every single bit of it that you've been carrying at the feet of Jesus Christ, who is the forgiver, and do not pick it up again. Leave it there. Leave it there. You weren't designed to carry it in the first place. And then talk to God in these moments about how you want to live passionately the life that he has in store for you, but that you can't do it on your own strength. That you need his strength. Tell him that you're his. 
Tell him that you're a child of his and that you're relying on him to be your strength. If you're a Christ follower, use this time, would you? To be about those things as you start to pursue living the passionate life that God has in store for you. And maybe you're here today and you don't yet call yourself a Christ follower. Maybe you don't have a relationship with God yet through his son, Jesus Christ, but you want to live a life of passion. Here's the deal, and it's real simple. Jesus Christ died to overcome all three of those barriers of living a life of passion. God loves you so much, no matter how big your mess seems, He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to be your savior, to be the rescuer of your soul, to forgive you of your sin, to set you free from the guilt and the shame of that sin, and to give you his strength, his power as the source for living. And you can step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ right here and right now. You can choose in this moment to put your faith and trust in him and you can begin a friendship with him right now. And if that's you, if you're choosing to do that today, and I hope you will if you don't yet have a friendship with God, I'd invite you to simply express that to God by praying along with me right where you're sitting a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus Christ to make a way for me to live a passionate life, to make a way for me to live in relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned. I know I've been living life far from you, God, but today I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you, God. God, I believe with everything in me that Jesus died on the cross for that sin. And I ask you to please forgive me and please come and live inside of me because God, I want you to be my friend starting right now. I need you to change me starting right now. I need you to clean my life up. I need you to handle all these messes that I've made starting right now. And you know, if you prayed that prayer with me just then, that's the biggest decision of your whole life. If I knew that you just had one month to live, that's where our whole conversation would start because that's the biggest decision of anyone's existence. And around here, it's such a big deal to us that we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And we don't ask them to do it in any embarrassing way. We're not asking you to embarrass yourself in any way. I want you to know that every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I'm the only one looking around this room. But if you prayed with me just then to begin a friendship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, to start in on the trajectory of the passion-filled life that God intends for you, Would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and just say, yeah, I did that. I prayed that prayer. I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Yeah, you right there, sir. Way to go. Right now, God is changing you, and right now, he's making you new. You're his. Are there any others? Would you just make sure that I can catch your eye, please? Just lift your hand and make eye contact with me. God, it's utterly inconceivable to us that you've chosen to put your life inside of us and avail us to 
the life that you have in mind, the full throttle life. We're blown away by that gift. And God, we want to tap into it. We don't just want it to sit unused, an untapped resource, God. We want to live the life that you have in mind for us. We can't do it by yourself, ourselves. We need your strength. We need your forgiveness. We need your ability inside of us to help set aside the guilt and the shame. And so God, help us to do that, please. Help us to live the passionate, full-throttle life that you have in mind. And God, that it wouldn't just be a 30-day thing, that it would be a life of passion. That it would be a one-month-to-live way of living the rest of our lives, no matter how long or short we've got left. We're yours. We're all yours. And we love you. And we pray all of this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls. And the church said, Amen.